This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, the heart of the carnival, circuses, amusement parks and fairgrounds in fiction. And this week we are delighted to welcome back Hamish Steele, who has been on the show before and is here to talk about his new upcoming Netflix series, Dead End Paranormal Park. Hello, Hamish. Yay! Yay. <laughs> it's been ages since you've been on on the podcast, hasn't it? Years been, and years. Been, yeah, years. World-changing events. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Things um, have happened. <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty sure one of the times I came on, I mentioned like, well, I'm developing something that might become something. Yeah, you know, I think that was literally the last thing we kind of talked about you. You're saying there's something that might be something in the pipeline. (laughs) It's crazy. And um, I don't even know if that was the show that we ended up making or, or what. But yeah, I've been developing stuff for ages like 10 years trying to like make a show happen in the industry Mm -hmm. um and now a show is coming out um i'm not sure when this goes out but uh, so the show comes out on june 16th yep um so that might be this week or next week i'm not sure um it's dead end paranormal park yeah it's based on a graphic novel um series that i am currently writing and have what am I? It's like released. I've released two <laughs> copies of, but I am, um, you know, it's an ongoing series called Dead Endia. Um, Netflix changed the name. It's fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, to Dead End Paranormal Park or just Dead End. Um, and uh, we, yeah, it's really, really fun. It's it like a YA um, kids. It, it's, I don't know. It's to me the books are YA. The show that kind of doesn't really exist in animated sort of cartoons, but mm-hmm. it 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 is sort of YA. Um, comedy, horror, adventure, mystery, romance, drama, sci-fi, you name it. Adventure series. Yeah. Um, set in a theme park um, about a few people, a few teens uh, working at a theme park over the summer that happens to be haunted so yeah it, it's it's really fun it we basically started making it um in 2019 mm-hmm. and the uh, like literally we were supposed to move into our full-time proper studio in late march 2020 huh. so we essentially made the entire show in lockdown over slack and emails and zoom calls and stuff which was definitely a baptism, uh, like a baptism of fire for me, first yeah. time show running, um, and it's that weird thing where it's like, I would have loved it to have been different, but I'm also glad I had something like that during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, just to like, you know, have some focus on something, something to look forward to. Um. And yeah, I've been doing quite a few, a little bit of press at the moment, and like all the press focuses on the fact that it's, uh, I guess, quote unquote, diverse. Um, It does have a trans gay lead character, um, which is 
uh, uncommon, I suppose. Yeah, uh, but incredibly exciting because that was one thing I think that kind of came up when because obviously I'm a fan of the the graphic novel, um, and I did wonder how they were going to approach the character of Barney, and so it was incredibly interesting to see. Um, and incredibly gratifying to see that there hasn't been a change in that regard. No, I I, I can say that I don't think Netflix have been um, the most uh, progressive all the time, let's say. They've been doing a lot of comedy specials and things that I don't particularly, uh, you know, don't particularly approve of. Hmm. But I will also say that nobody else would have made Dead End or commissioned it in 2019, definitely. Mm. And um, they've never pushed back on anything. If anything, they've pushed us to go further than I thought we were allowed to. Um, it's not just Barney, like the the cast and crew um, and the the amount of characters that can be on screen at one time that are like named canonically queer characters and like not just i one thing that also i'm really proud of the show is that it's not just representation in the sense that you can point at them and say that's a gay character mm. i do think there's kind of um my sense of queerness is kind of in the bones of the storytelling. Yeah. It's sort of the sensibility is sort of there throughout. And and one of the things I also like is that I actually am a big fan of like queer subtext and like that type of storytelling where you can tell kind of maybe bigger, more c- complex feelings by uh, using metaphor and stuff. And one of the things I like about our show is that we kind of do both. There's episodes where, like, the characters are trans and gay, but, like, also the sort of demon supernatural plotline sort of is queer in its storytelling or has a message or something to say. That's, um, that's really exciting. I, I'm, I'm so excited to see it. I'm just from, you know, considering where it started off um, with, you know, cartoon hangover... Mm. Um, and and it's kind of I wouldn't say humble origins because I think even from the get go you were incredibly successful with it but to see how it's grown and how these characters have developed is incredibly exciting um, now one thing that we're going to be focusing on today and which is also very interesting in terms of what you've just been speaking about with kind of the the queer representation both on the surface and you know um i was about to say subliminally like every now and again it just goes be gay um (laughs) this is the true queer agenda coming out there um no (laughs) but you know sort of underneath the surface is of course the setting um because it's set in an amusement park now i really uh, i'm so excited to get into this but i've got to ask hamish why did you decide to set Dead Endia and and subsequently obviously Dead End in an amusement park. It's interesting because um, there's a kind of practical explanation. Where mm-hmm. and then as we started writing, I I realized how, uh, I guess how much 
theme parks had affected my life mm-hmm. and why it, why it was, you know, the solution I jumped to. So essentially, in the original Cartoon Hangover pilot, which we made um, approaching 10 years ago, mm. um, it, it was a five-minute short that went online. It was... The only goal of the short was to be funny. So it didn't really have very complex, like, world-building or or much logic to the characters. And in mm. that sh- and in that short, it was just a bunch of friends living in a haunted house. Um, <laughs> and they were like kind of young. They sort of read as like 18 to 20 sort of whatever. And they seemed to just be living in a haunted house with no parental supervision. Yeah. So when we developed it, um, initially that pilot was shopped around to various channels and then it didn't happen. And I, turned basically our pitch into the Dead Endia comic. Mm-hmm. I had to think of a reason to justify these characters living in a haunted house and without their parents, basically, because I'm sure you've covered this, but parents are, are great, you know, storytelling things, but they can be, uh, they can sort of get in the way of YA storylines sometimes. Yeah, yeah. they're pesky. Yeah. you got to get rid of them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um... And I just kept on trying to work out, like, well, is it a real haunted house or is it a haunted house attraction or is it a whatever? And it just became this, like, story solution to justify a bunch of teens living in a haunted house that I just made it a haunted house attraction. Mm. And that kind of spiraled into, well... I want to establish this theme park. Like, why is there a haunted house? What's it based on? Uh, what else is in this park? Is it all horror themed or has it got different flavors? And I just kind of really deep dived. I kind of watched everything on theme park YouTube, like <laughs> um, people just exploring theme parks and talking about the history of them. I got like big books of like the construction of Disneyland and the history of the Haunted Mansion attraction. Um and as I kept going, I just realized there hadn't really been a show or a comic series where that's the main setting. Mm. Um, I mean, there had been. We're going to talk about some today. But I hadn't. it hadn't been like used over and over again to the point of like, well, you can't do that anymore. Yeah. There'd been lots of great episodes of things or one-off specials or movies set in theme parks. But I also felt like it's it's just a funny place to parody as well. Mm. Um, and I like getting into the details of, you know, once I've started, once I came up with the name of the park, it was really fun to design what the cups look like and what the benches look like and what, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. Um, it, I will just say one thing to avoid confusion. In, again, in the books, the park is called Pollywood. Right. And in the show, it's called Phoenix Parks. Right. Uh, my lawyers will explain. <laughs> um, no, it was... It no, no, was... I, I, I'm sure. I, I think we can understand. <laughs> so, I mean, it wasn't the lawyers. It wasn't really legal. I think, um, again, Pollywood was meant to be inspired a bit like Dollywood. But I think if you make something that close a reference, it kind of flattens what you can do with it or what you can say with it. Yeah. It ends up feeling like a specific parody of Dollywood. And I didn't want to like parody Dolly Parton and make people think I think all these like horrible things about Dolly Parton. So, <laughs> um, yeah, we changed it to something a little bit more freeing, maybe a little bit more generic, but mm-hmm. um, it was it was so much fun. And our um, 
art team just went crazy at designing every single thing about this park. And once the show's out, I really can't wait to show like our park map and all these things that like every single shot of the show, we know where the camera's pointing and we know what like rides should be visible in the distance and like we know where every single bin <laughs> in the park is. That's amazing. So it's, it's it's very well thought out. I a big shout out to Dommy Fox, who was our art director. Um and I'll just briefly say that the other reason uh, when we were writing the show, mm-hmm. um, you know, we talked on the first day of writing, like, oh, what's your theme park sort of experience? Did you go a lot as a child? And I said, well, I didn't go a lot as a child, but I always went to Chessington World of Adventures for my birthday. <laughs> um, and my birthday's in October, so Chessington was always designed Halloween-y when I went. Oh. And so to me, a theme park should always have a spooky, at least a spooky area or a spooky vibe. And I've kind of always associated them with the South. And also my mum, like, I sometimes think I'm, you might agree or disagree. I sometimes (laughs) think we're in the last generation of, like, uh, people who can kind of remember Halloween not being a thing here. Yeah. Yeah. In the in the sort of American sense. Like I remember growing up and trick or treating not really being a thing and then it sort of becoming more common when I was a little bit too old for it. Yeah, isn't that the tragedy of life? <laughs> but my mum was a really early adopter of making Halloween really big. Um and she'd like fully decorate our house uh when we were at school on Halloween. And when we came home there was like cobwebs and orange lights and she'd dress up as a witch and stuff and we'd do like the witch's body thing and we'd go all out. So I think just Halloween was always such a prescient thing and I really associated it with theme parks. Mm. So when it came to working out why my characters should be in a haunted house and my first thought was, oh, horror theme park. (laughs) I'm sure my childhood had something to do with it. (laughs) That's really fascinating, and I, I really love that. Sounds I'm legit. Kind of, I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> like a, this feels like home. This is familiar. <laughs> yeah. And really, really interesting in terms of kind of some of the things that we're going to talk about now. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we kind of delve into theme parks and amusement parks and things like that, uh, the first thing we wanted to address is to talk a little bit about Carnival and the history of Carnival. Um, we promise you it, it is relevant, dear listener. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> Plus, we will cram folklore in wherever we possibly oh, can. You're damn right, we will. <laughs> so, um, uh, Carnival, in its, in its sort of tradition, um, its medieval tradition and the traditions that kind of reach back earlier than that was at its core a celebration of life um and its main kind of component was subverting and bending social rules and laws it was essentially a day where everything became topsy-turvy and i say a day sometimes it would be like a whole week (laughs) Yeah, um, it it can depend, can't it? I mean, it comes from, we've talked about this in previous episodes, so I won't mm. go into detail, but things like Saturnalia, where, yeah. which was a, a Roman festival set around what we would now consider Christmas or Yule, 
um, yeah. whereby, you know, masters became slaves for the day, slaves became the masters, everybody wore the wrong clothing, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so during Carnival, you had lustfulness and decadence over piety, for example. These kinds of behaviours were normal. It was okay if you were going around kissing people, totally fine. Chaos over order. So, you know, the social structure, the social rules, complete breakdown. Um, and this was acceptable, even encouraged. And you had a lot of pagan imagery and things like that um, over... Christian imagery, for example. So you see a lot of the old kind of uh, sort of older religions and, and older beliefs bleeding through into the imagery, the activities um, during Carnival. Um, is it okay if I'm just playing that Hunchback of Notre Dame song in my head over and over yep, again absolutely. right now? Totally fine, totally fine. Because <laughs> you know what? The Hunchback of Notre Dame is is the perfect example of Carnival, and it's every time I talk about Carnival, and we'll talk about the Carnivalesque in a moment as well. I always say, right, the Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> <laughs> they did capture it really, really well, didn't they? Considering they really, it's just really this did. small section of a Disney film, it's like, mm. yeah. Now, one of the most interesting things about the Carnival is that Carnival welcomes everyone equally irrespective of social standing and order. It literally is for everyone. It doesn't matter what walk of life you came from, whether you were a criminal, whether you were poor, um, whether you were working class, whether you were rich, whether you were part of... Well, I, I was even going to say whether you were part of the clergy. I mean, I'm pretty sure that you would have had priests and, and, and all sorts of people, perhaps not meant to be, but also taking part. Um, now, irrespective of all of this, uh, you were welcome. It was a celebration and is to this day a celebration of equality. Essentially, the idea is that if everyone is odd, everyone is united. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a as you were saying, you know, there were probably clergy there who weren't meant to be there, but were taking part as well. I yeah. think it's sort of depending on when in when when along the timeline we're talking about, but things like yeah. um, Mardi Gras, for example, people recognise that if you're going to have a society with rigid structure in place and strictures on what people can and can't do and positions that you're basically born into and you cannot leave, um, that every so often you need to turn the tap and release the pressure a little bit, which I think is what a lot of these celebrations sort of, you know, they had pagan origins, but that's kind of what they served. Um, I've heard, I've seen other people argue that using sort of carnival is kind of a you have a you have a day or a week <laughs> where everybody basically just gets absolutely shit faced and does whatever they want, um, <laughs> not just as a pressure relief, but kind of as a well, this w would be kind of what it's like if we didn't have this rigid social structure, and so yeah. that people went back to their old lives knowing exactly where things were and what was going on with something like relief. Um, that kind of holds water and also kind of doesn't when you when you compare different lives. I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also interesting in in what Hamish was saying earlier with regards to the use of theme parks and, and, and carnivals and stuff like that as a setting in story, is that, as Hamish pointed out, you get lots of stories where they have 
an episode which is set there um, where everything is topsy-turvy and then at the end of it it's over it's finished that's closed it's not something which is explored in greater depth and this is interesting for several reasons that we're going to get into a little bit later now how does this all tie in with our theme for today well I would say that circuses, fairgrounds, amusement parks, they're a type of condensed carnival. These are places which are filled with humour and fear, and everything is designed to thrill and excite, and to break the kind of the structures that one would usually expect within society. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's interesting that you have a lot of the travelling type communities who uh, not every travelling community, obviously, but, you mm. know, certain groups of Romani, certain groups of Irish travellers, certain groups of what sort of came to be collectively known as carny folk. And I use the mm. word carny in inverted commas because some people, that's how they choose to identify and other people are kind of like, no, that's now a slur. Yeah. So it depends, I think, which side of the, um, the pond you're on as well. Um, mm. But yeah, this idea of, well, we carry the fun with us kind of thing and then we yeah. move off to the next town. Um, and there is sort of this weird strained tolerance between the local population that doesn't move around and the traveling folk who come in and kind of bring the fun with the idea that you know if you're not careful you might get fleeced yeah and Um, that you come in you bring the fun and then you leave yeah exactly um what's really interesting about kind of circuses fairgrounds and amusement parks is also the the fact that they kind of run on illusions and magic in inverted commas they draw on the fantastical the absurdist um and they have a lot of eccentric elements which activate the imaginations of children who are obviously very attracted to these kinds of places um and adults are also attracted to these kinds of places but i think particularly as a child you kind of go i could live in an amusement park as an adult you're like yeah i'd like to visit an amusement park but i'm not sure how much time i want to spend there but then again it also depends on the kind of adult you are and the lived experience that you have but it particularly captures the imagination in that way where there's this sense that the laws of nature even don't entirely apply can you ever remember going to i i don't know how many sort of we used to call them in my day we used to call them fun fairs <laughs> and it, mm. it used to be quite sort of shonky equipment i don't think they had rigid safety standards on quite a lot of it and it was always this there was there was something with the grotesque about a lot of the rides and things like you know the um the carousel with the horses and everything the horses were always slightly terrifying Yes. Can you remember going to something like that and also being like, this is brilliant, this is loads of fun. Um, I've also absolutely hyped out of my mind on sugar right now. But this is also really quite a scary place to be. Yeah, it's 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 the fact that, you know, everyone's like, yeah, fairgrounds during the day and then fairgrounds at night. It's like, let's get out of here. <laughs> like, We're no. going to get killed. There's <laughs> a zombie apocalypse <laughs> waiting to happen. Yeah. I think from a kid's perspective, something that's quite magical is um you know if if it's a thing a fun fair that's just being set up in your local park hmm. it's it's like a normal park one day and then overnight it becomes disneyland and then they're gone you know yeah. by monday 
And you, as a kid, don't necessarily know the difference between a shoddy ride that's like powered by a generator or Disneyland. It's just yeah. rides, and it's yeah. so exciting. And you can't explain. You can't understand why your parents are like, oh, "It's a bit expensive. It's a ripoff. Oh, don't we?" You know, you just think it's excitement. One of my favorite things about those kinds of fairgrounds, and that's definitely energy we try to channel in Dead End, is like the off-model paint jobs of like movie characters on rides yeah. <laughs> yes yes you'll you'll like in 2022 you'll go to a fairground which will have like a bad paint job of like hugh jackman's wolverine and an avatar navi character <laughs> and it'll just be like thrill seeker ride and you're like you don't own the rights to anything it's like my my goal in life is to make a character that's like badly painted onto an ice cream van one day <laughs> that's a legitimate goal definitely yeah. <laughs> totally a legitimate goal I love it <laughs> one that and we always used to go to as kids was Blandford Fair Steam Rally and it was slightly different in that all the rides were powered by steam so you'd have these massive massive steam engines and I'm pretty sure this is still going now sort of once every year around August time um, just sort of outside of Blandford so you'd have the massive, massive steam engines and you'd have all the sort of traditional rides and things and a few of the slightly more modern ones, but they were all powered by steam rather than electric generators. Hmm. Um, and my parents knew someone who actually who, who actually drove a steam engine. <laughs> and to nice. me, as a child, that seemed like a really normal thing because I'd been up on this massive steam engine and it was only much later on that I realised people didn't know what I was talking about when I was trying to talk <laughs> about steam engines. <laughs> My one recollection I always have um, is going into a kind of a mirror maze sort of place, mm. um, which they had done in a very mystical sort of way. Like it was sort of, you know, Merlin's Crystal Cave, not not the the one in Glastonbury, uh, not in Glastonbury in in Cheddar Gorge, but it, it was something like that. Um, and I remember thinking. Why on earth would anyone get confused by mirrors? You can see yourself coming towards yourself, but by God, did I get confused. <laughs> the amount of times I crashed into myself thinking that it was another person who was going to move out of the way. <laughs> Spoilers for Dead End Paranormal Park, but there is a uh, mirror maze-themed horror sequence about ten, about like a minute into the first episode. <laughs> That sounds awesome. amazing, and I and I'm so excited for that. <laughs> I do remember, sort of, what was I about twelve, thirteen? No, I don't think it was even that old. I was probably about eleven, and there were some, you know, my mum's best friend had boys, so it was me and my sister and these two boys, and they kind of um, dared us to go on the, the ghost train again at this Blandford Fair steam rally, and I was I was really not sure about this. Um, but, you know, I'd been dared to it, so we, we all got it in the car, we all got on this thing. And I was we were going round this ghost train, and I was thinking, actually, this isn't so bad, that's just a glow-in-the-dark plastic skeleton kind of thing. And then this guy in a werewolf outfit leapt out, and the car stopped. <laughs> and obviously he was doing his whole sort of like, ah, oh, scary werewolf thing. Yeah, it's not great to startle me, because my reaction was to punch the guy in the face. <laughs> oh, Jules! <laughs> And then the car started again, and we got out, and, and afterwards my mum was like, is everything all right? And all four children sort of looked at each other a little bit sheepishly, it's like, yeah, 
it's fine, nothing happened. <laughs> I think haunted houses and, and ghost trains um, succeed on the fact that a stranger in a bad costume is inherently scarier than a werewolf or a ghost. Yeah, totally. Because <laughs> you don't know what they're going to do and they don't know, you know, it's scary. Yeah. Stranger yeah. danger for the first time. <laughs> So I wanted to talk a little bit about the carnivalesque. Now, um, I've probably mentioned this previously when ta- when we had our kind of gothic discussions, but just as a reminder, the carnivalesque is an idea which was proposed by a Russian critic and scholar, uh, Mikhail Bak- uh, uh, Batkin. Um, now, the core of the carnival, according to him, is life and death combined and contrasting which is interesting particularly given into sort of some of the themes that we're going to talk about in a second now features of the carnivalesque in literature um, there are three main features the first is that a carnivalesque novel will usually have a non-linear narration so this means that the story jumps Uh, from perspectives, includes or is told in flashbacks, begins at the middle or the end, or has large time or space jumps. So some good examples of this are Frankenstein, uh, which is obviously like (laughs) a weird thing in that it begins at the end and is relayed through a letter which is relayed from someone telling someone else, etc. So Frankenstein, Dracula as well, when you're jumping between uh, the different characters, the different places, uh, they're kind of going back, talking about what happened where they were, their perspective of certain things, but also in comedy. So a really good example of this in a sort of, uh, a sort of an animated film is The Emperor's New Groove where obviously it begins and you have that whole breakdown where you have Cusco saying, yeah, this is me. You might be wondering what's happened. And he kind of breaks time and breaks a little bit of the third wall, which we'll talk about in a second. So a non-linear narration is one of the key features of the carnivalesque, but not one of its core elements, I would argue. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, It's, and you find it in things that you wouldn't necessarily consider carnivalesque, which mm. kind of goes to show how much it's influenced other writing. But being able to collapse time like that in order to fit quite a lot of plot into quite a small space turns up yeah. in all sorts of genres. Yeah, absolutely. The next, um, and these next two are really kind of, for me, the core of what's in the carnivalesque, um, is the reversal of hierarchies. Now, this means that imperfections are celebrated, madness, I say in inverted commas, is celebrated, darkness is celebrated. So, once again, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, perfect example of the carnivalesque in a scene which is set during Carnival, where he is a you've got quasimodo who is award the king because he is considered to be the ugliest person there so it's the celebration of ugliness in a society which would usually shun him for it um but also it's the celebration of things like 
big, vivid sort of emotions, particularly during periods where you were supposed to be more reserved, uh, lustfulness, um, eccentricity, but also within sort of the def what we defined as, particularly during the Victorian period, what was defined as being uh, good behavior and bad behavior, things like homosexuality, um, you know, homosexual acts sort of being almost accepted, um, people dressing in drag, etc. Things which society at a given time would usually reject or might even imprison people for are suddenly at the forefront. They are celebrated. Uh, women have the power over men in a usual patriarchal society, etc. Um, the last and the most crucial is eccentric behaviour. Um, now, this means characters behaving in socially unacceptable ways. So it, it kind of ties in with the reversal of the hierarchies. So socially acceptable ways includes them behaving erratically or humorously. So this includes things like breaking into song or dance. So having a musical episode, for example, um, which Hamish, I heard that there is one in <laughs> Dead End. Um, yep. that, that is very carnivalesque. Uh, but also things like pulling pranks, behaving poorly, acting like children, and breaking social and literary rules. So, Comedia dell'arte, that really kind of leans into that element of the carnivalesque, but also things like Deadpool, where he's breaking literary rules by breaking the fourth wall. He's addressing you. He's sort of, he's recognizes the metafictional element of his own, uh, you know, of his own existence, etc. This is all eccentric behavior. Now, with that in mind, uh, let's talk a little bit about using circuses and amusement parks as a setting, because pretty much whenever you do, you are leaning into the carnivalesque. Uh, now, books and media which use these often draw on elements of the carnivalesque, um, because obviously the pair are very deeply tied. The prevailing theme is usually a found family of freaks. Uh, hmm. And I say freaks in inverted commas again, uh, which is otherwise, you know, people who do not in fit in otherwise. They find equality and understanding in a place where society's rules do not apply. And there are some fantastic examples of that. Um, one really good example is The Night Circus by Erin uh, Morgenstein. That is how I pronounce her name, isn't it? I thought it was Morgan Stern, but that might just Morgan be me Stern. misreading it. You know? yeah. <laughs> I think out of the two of us, I'm more likely to misread something. But, um, but again, so it, it's all set around this kind of travelling circus, which is, gets weirder and weirder. Um, and this kind of this family who all come together. Um, uh, and one of the plot lines involves a young boy who leaves home in pursuit of the circus because... He just doesn't quite fit in with where he is. His heart is kind of being pulled toward the circus. Um, and this, has a this is a double-edged sword because there's an element of the fact that when you're at the circus, y you can't necessarily leave it if you kind of become part of it. Y you know, it, it, 
it kind of consumes you. And what always interested me was that there were people who would sort of walk around, who would pursue the night circus because they just loved visiting it so much. And for me, that really kind of lent into that theme of we pursue this not just because it's wondrous, but because we have found belonging there. Yeah. It's something, um, just sort of reflecting back to the carnivalesque, is that's always sort of struck me is that it um, it's a place where you can embrace and consider potentially uncomfortable truths mm. um, within this sort of liminal space. So we've got the whole thing with the you know the, the traveling show coming in, bringing the fun, and then leaving again. It's not. It's temporary. It's not altering reality as far as you can see permanently, which is yeah. where people are more willing to examine things that make them uncomfortable there. And I think you get some of that hangover with sort of theme parks and amusement parks and things as well. Yeah, I would agree. And certainly from what you were talking about earlier, Hamish, with regards to um, the, you know, the queer representation, both um, underneath and over the top, it was really interesting to hear you talking about that because um, that is at the core, in a lot of ways, of the carnivalesque of people who are outside of the remit of what is socially acceptable or who feel that they don't belong finding acceptance and belonging within a place a space where society's rules has no power yeah it's it's been fascinating listening to this because it's not necessarily i was something i was um intentionally uh, drawing upon mm. but you know the storyline is about a um, trans kid who doesn't feel completely comfortable at home and he runs away to live at a theme park and in the second episode he, you know he says this is the first place where I can be myself uh, which is saying something mm. when the first two episodes he's been in like mortal danger and there's been <laughs> kinds of things so um, the second episode itself is kind of the one I was thinking of when um, talking about the kind of dual like representation but also themes mm. um, because it is the episode where Barney says the words I'm trans and kind of comes out to Norma but it's also the kind of A plot of the episode is um, Pugsley, his talking dog trying to kind of work out what he is anymore is he like a dog or a person or a monster or what yeah and trying to not spoil too much it does end in him going to like a mascot parade in the park and it's sort of thematically his like pugsley's sort of first pride in a way um but and what's interesting is like that's the sort of subtext but then we actually have the the text as well we have mm. barney coming out we have barney essentially running away to join the circus. Yeah. Um, and I kind of was, when you were talking about that book, I was wondering where that cliche of running away to join the circus like comes from. Other yeah. than people were literally doing it, but like, when did it become this like joke you can just say in a sitcom? That's a really good question. And it was something I was suddenly thinking about as well. Um, because obviously, yes, you do have Barney essentially running away to join the circus. Um, and the kind of characters who 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 run away to join the circus, and it's always, I don't feel right or I feel trapped within the setting that I'm in. 
And mm. here there is a place where um, there's an opportunity for me to be myself or for me or, or what I believe is an opportunity for me to be myself. Um, and what's I think interesting about uh, what you were talking about in terms of Pugsley and stuff like that um, is the fact that obviously this is sensational and fantastic in terms of kind of queer representation, um, but it also speaks to everyone who, and all of us will have at some point, had this kind of question of identity and self um, and who am I now? Who am I now that I am? I can no longer do this sport that I was so good at? Who am I now, now that I'm no longer the top of the class? Who am I now, now that, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I, I've gone through puberty or I've broken up with someone or, you know, things like that. And in that we have that, the brevity of, of the carnival in that it's this moment of, fantastical I don't have to be anyone or I can totally be myself um, and then you kind of walk away with it with a sort of an inherent knowledge within you and it's the difference between this being just a moment that you need before you go back into the real world uh, or actually Carnival being the real world for you in some respects where mm. the topsy-turvy will just entirely makes sense and one thing i'm very keen to see which we kind of got a hint at in terms of the uh, in the trailer is barney running away but also in some ways having to face his family uh through his sibling mm -hmm. so i'm really interested to see how all of that works out because it just ties in so fantastically um, and you're right that there's something fairly instinctual about the setting in that way, but I think it's one of the things that really makes Dead End so unique is the way that you have just permanently used this backdrop, which adds so much to the themes that you're pulling through. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> but we're getting an inkling of that, so... Yeah. Sorry! <laughs> no, that's good, it's good. <laughs> It's nice to hear. <laughs> so another thing is obviously that the setting is also perfect for introducing elements of horror, magic, and the occult. Um, now there are some other examples of this, like uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury, which is a horror story um, that involves people going onto a... Uh, a merry-go-round that goes backwards and reverses their age and turns them young. But uh, there's actually something rather nefarious happening there and it's all rather creepy. <laughs> and it's in the run-up to Halloween as well. <laughs> so that's uh, that's worth a read. Um, but also things like uh, Darren Shan's uh, Cirque de Freak and things like that. And obviously in Dead End, I'd say there's probably a little bit of magic in there from, from what I've seen. Yeah. Maybe a little yeah. bit. <laughs> I was just thinking, I feel like theme parks are in some ways and, and fairgrounds and carnivals are some ways, sometimes kids' first introduction to horror. There's a lot of children's fiction. Um, I know there's like a, a sort of sub-series of Goosebumps books called Horrorland. I had a book as a kid called Funfair of Evil. <laughs> uh, um, that sounds like a, like a choose your own title. <laughs> yeah, it was like a choose your own adventure 
um, sort of book. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'm sure you've talked about clowns and, and all that stuff, but there's this... <laughs> um, yeah, subversion of the normal world can be quite scary to kids. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's... Um... We say we say the word whimsy, and I think a lot of people think it's kind of like a cutesy word, but whimsy's actually got quite a lot of horror attached to it because it's the world but delivered subtly distorted, so funhouse mm. mirror style. Yeah, um, I'd sort of these these examples don't really take place in a carnival at all, but they sort of use the same um, representing reality in a slightly distorted form or a very distorted form. So things like the purge which, by the way, I don't mm-hmm. actually like, but this idea of turning everything upside down and then having basically an, an all-you-can-eat buffet for uh, doing whatever the hell you want one night a year, and if you've got yeah. any sense, you lock yourself away, uh, which I think is a terrible idea, and I yep. don't like it, but <laughs> it, it definitely plays on that trope. Yeah, I completely agree. Um it- and it is, it's that, it is that distortion. Um, I mean, when you think horror, if you, if you hear that certain sort of that, uh, you know, dun, 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 you know, music happening in the background, immediately you kind of go, oh no, something bad's about to happen. There's going to be some kind of creepy talking doll. Yeah. Or, I mean, uh, or... <laughs> it's like Stephen King's It. Whenever yeah. the clown's about to turn up, the kids kind of know because the Calliope music starts playing. It's like he's attached to a traveling fair, which turns up like, every sort of 27 years or so but when you when you were describing carnival and saying you know you know at times when cross-dressing was a criminal offense it essentially Mm. was a purge yeah 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 Um, which is so interesting and what's interesting to me is how how many elements of carnival and stuff like that you get in things like pride nowadays as well yeah yeah um in that you do also have people who would usually, you know, they they've got they've got their office job, you know, <laughs> nine to five. They they sort of they go <laughs> they go there. They they pay their taxes. They they just they wear suits and stuff like that. And then Pride comes along, um, and they are out there in bondage, you know. And and again, <laughs> I'm not making stereotypes or anything like that. But it's the fact that it's this moment where unapologetically one can be oneself mm-hmm. definitely do you have either of you watched much dark mirror which is also netflix i think black yeah. mirror black do i mean black i mean black mirror you're right I do no, mean black yes mirror. i have watched that terrifies yeah. me <laughs> um i can go either way on it it really depends because they're kind of like it's kind of like a portmanteau type um series so it's not like one episode feeds into the next one generally you get one episode and it's a self-contained story and some yeah. of them really fill me with existential angst which is way worse than being scared in my opinion. <laughs> and some of them are really kind of like quite thought-provoking um but yeah it, that again has that sort of carnivalesque feel to it weirdly yeah. you get carnivalesque in sort of shakespeare as well oh yeah absolutely midsummer night's dream for example Yes. I mean, there's even elements of that in The Tempest, too. Yeah. I'd say. Um, and and also some parts in kind of Macbeth and things like that. Okay. Um, so finally, I think the setting provides the perfect stage to examine the forgotten people. 
um, so shunned minorities, queer individuals, the disabled, and so forth. Um, I mean, you get elements of that in The Greatest Showman, obviously, which I recognise that the history behind that and the show are obviously very different. I'm just going to focus on the Hugh Jackman show. Um, But, you know, it provides this opportunity to say, let's look at the people that society kind of doesn't want. And why this is important is that society doesn't want and in terms of literature literature often doesn't want and yet they're kind of acceptable in the carnivalesque settings particularly if we look at kind of the gothic which is usually very carnivalesque because it's well this is meant to be weird so we can have weird socially unacceptable characters and Obviously, nowadays, we are kind of trying to move away from this idea of, oh, no, you can only have uh, a little person, you can only have a disabled person, you can only have a queer person in this very weird setting. But I think what's happened and what has fed into the aesthetic of a lot of queer kids and queer creators and content creators is the fact that when we were growing up, the only place we saw ourselves reflected was in that kind of literature. So there is this association with that, and it's a positive association rather than it being a bleh association, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. It does, I mean, it does to me. I think um, this is a little off topic, but like the, the show um, Dead End is also about demons, mm. and I think similar things can be said about sort of demonic imagery and hell imagery being so appealing to people who have been told they're going to hell all their life. Yes. Um, (laughs) And it's getting a little bit more into kind of much later in the show and and sort of where it heads. But our sort of definition of demons are demonized people. So Mm. that's kind of the theme we're running with where you see someone, you know, painted red with horns on their heads, breathing fire. You might make some judgments. You might make some... um, Might have some assumptions. (laughs) Assumptions about their, you know, their D&D alignment, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) But I think our show is trying to, um, you know, our our heroes, you know, Barney and Norma, they can see a lot of themselves in these characters. Mm. Um, And so even though it's a horror thing and they get scared by demons initially, as the show goes on, they become much more uh, friendly with them and kind of on their side and see their point of view a lot more. Yeah. And that's really, really interesting, again, in the way that um, you mix in, sort of, uh, particularly with, with Carnival and stuff like that, the, the old paganism versus the Christianity. Um, and the idea of everything being black and white in terms of one is good one is bad Um, and you Mm. can dip into the bad things but then you've kind of got to banish it Um, and again so having that kind of uh, space where everything is kind of up in the air where the darkness is is encouraged celebrated instead um, allows you the chance to actually look at these these things these these minorities these groups these images which have been pushed into that dark category and actually say are these bad um are these actually as they have been painted or is it just contrast um and so that is really really interesting 
to me. And I particularly like that idea that, uh, you know, the, the sort of the demons are the people who've been demonized. Um, because it really does pay into this idea of what is, you know, what what is it to be monstrous? Um, which, again, with links in with a gothic, links in with a carnivalesque, you have a lot of queer individuals who associate with with the creature from Frankenstein, for example, with with Dracula in some ways because of their monstrousness. Um, in that, if you have spent your entire life being told you are a monster you are going to sympathize with the other monsters. Have you, have either of you seen the 1932 film Freaks? Yes, but a very long time ago. <laughs> it's not, it's, well, let's just say it's controversial. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's not great, or, uh, it, it, it's, it's, I don't know, it's hard to explain. But one of the things that's interesting about it, I suppose, is it was very it's um you know cast a lot of people who had worked in freak shows and circuses um and was definitely advertised as a sort of horror film like can you believe the horrors you'll see inside and it's just like a little person <laughs> um, but like oh, the no. plot <laughs> the sort of plot line is to spoil a you know 100-year-old film um a sort of beautiful, able-bodied trapeze artist, uh, sort of showgirl, um, learns that the kind of the little person in the um, show has like a large inheritance, and so plans to sort of seduce and kill him. And the end of the film is like the horror moment where all of the quote-unquote freaks sort of shout one of us, one of us, and chase her through the circus. And eventually turn her into a duck. Oh. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, on paper, she is the bad person. And they are the, you know, the, it's kind of odd in that the film, I say odd for a 1930s sort of horror movie about a freak show, um, in that actually how humanized the kind of, you know, circus acts are, I suppose. Um, the... I don't know. I just found it, it. I believe that's kind of partially why it was banned in some ways. Yeah. Not just because it was scary, but because it actually treated it, the freaks as the kind of more morally pure characters. Because the more you're talking about it now, the more I'm. Re- I mean, as I said, I saw it a very long time ago, but the way you you reminded me, what kind of struck me, although I wouldn't necessarily have put it in these terms at the time, was the fact that as you said, there's the, the humanising aspect, but that sense that whoever wrote it and created it, etc., kind of got caught up in their own creation. So a bit like Milton started sympathising with the devil in Paradise Lost and <laughs> yes. may not have told the story he thought he was setting out to tell. It felt kind of like that. As in, you know, you found yourself changing your mind about things as through the process of creating. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say one of the reasons I'd, I'd say it's a bad film is not because it's... Uh, I mean, it's probably problematic, I don't know, but it's actually quite boring. Like, a huge yeah. chunk of the film is um, the sort of dwarf and his wife basically having marital problems. And <laughs> n- no offence, they aren't the greatest of actors. It's not the... 
greatest of scripts. And so you're watching the film being like, why was this so controversial? Um, but I, it just came up. I mean, it was one of the things I thought of instantly when you, you told me the topic of the episode. Yeah. Uh, the other thing this has kind of made me think of, even though, again, it's not really set in a theme park or anything, is um, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Yeah. Um, I, I've read the first book, and honestly, I personally didn't really like the book. I didn't rate the rating style. The, the writing style, rather. Um, the rating style. The rating style, yes. Yeah, slipped that. Um <laughs> But I know they've been really popular with a lot of people, probably once again for this sense of you've got a whole bunch of characters who are different and people who feel different, obviously, feels a kinship with them. But the film was relatively good um, mm. in terms of it being an entertaining piece of, sort of children's fantasy. Um, but one, yeah, again, you have these... It, it's kind of like X-Men, except if everybody was given a gift that wasn't terribly useful. Mm. <laughs> Uh, I love it. <laughs> I, I love the way you describe things sometimes, Jules. <laughs> I guess while we're just on this topic a little bit, um, uh, I'm thinking of the Lemony Snicket's um, yeah. uh, one in the carnival. What's yeah. it called? I can't remember, but... Carnivorous Carnival or something. Yes. <laughs> something along those lines. Yeah. We know Snicket. But um, in that, there's like, um, on the list of quote-unquote freaks, you know, I believe they have a bearded lady. They have all the usuals. But one of them is just ambidextrous. <laughs> Sorry. And he's like shunned by his family. And like his act is that he just like swaps hands while writing and everyone. He's like the one that's most just sort of like, society will never understand my pain. <laughs> oh, I do love the way Lemony Snicket does that. But in, uh, but I think in some ways it sort of highlights, you know, having that, it, it highlights the ridiculousness of, of the way that we as a society ostracise people for the weirdest stuff mm. yeah <laughs> which you know here's hoping in 100 years people will be looking at dead end and being like why would anyone like have issue with their kid being trans i don't get it yeah or like i don't know i mean i'm sure maybe this is steering a little bit into a different topic but um, there's so much history to um discover about the freak show and like the the sort of what was going through the heads and the justifications of the acts and how much were they exploited versus how much were they you know making money off of something that they didn't have any other way of doing so yeah. um interesting yeah i was reading um an interesting article and I'm, I'm afraid I can't remember the name of the woman I would look it up but she was she became a, a, a quite a successful artist during the 19th century and she was born without arms and legs so she joined a freak show in order to make money and she learned to paint and sew and do a number of other things just using her lips and her paintings mm -hmm. became quite sought after obviously people went along to the freak show and they were kind of like amazed at, at the fact that she was doing all this and then they really looked at her paintings and realized that actually um she had quite a talent for it 
Mm. Um, which I know sounds kind of patronising, but obviously there were these Victorian gentlemen coming in with, a, with for, the, mm. for this thrill, and um, I suppose it's kind of the the sort of the thrill of the uncanny of seeing something that you wouldn't expect to actually work actually happening miraculously before your eyes. But yeah, yeah she and she, she kind of got buried in history. People just didn't really mention about her, and I think what the article was talking about was they'd unearthed one of her paintings and it sold for quite a lot of money in an auction. So, um, yes, again, you're right. There is an awful lot of history there as to how much they were making money and how much they were being exploited. But I did find that particular case quite interesting. Yeah. And and not just people who, um, you know, were born with things they can't help, but like the, the things like the tattooed woman yeah. kind of act hmm. where... You know, they wanted to live this lifestyle. The way that they could justify it is being an act, whereas, you know, normal society probably wouldn't have looked too kindly on someone. I was listening to a podcast about um, tattooed ladies of that era, and quite often they'd have to create some ridiculous origin story about how they were captured and by pirates and tattooed against their will in yeah. order to sort of justify the kind of spectacle of it whereas usually they're just like i really like getting tattoos (laughs) um so yeah that's really interesting and again it it kind of feeds into the fact that you know we talk about carnival and stuff like that um one thing you've got to think about is also the fact that this would involve things like sex work you know Mm -hmm. prostitutes and things like that and this whole kind of question of being an act is that you know is it actually that being an act is the way as you point out for you to be yourself in a society which otherwise wouldn't accept it or is it a form of exploitation um and i think it really goes sort of case by case for some people i imagine it was incredibly empowering for some people um it probably was something that they were forced to do um, and it's why it's it's very very important to recognize that when we talk about things like carnival where we talk about sort of circuses and stuff like that yes they were absolutely places for um the the people in society's fringes to find sanctuary they were also sometimes places where the people in society's fringes were horrifically abused Um, were forced to go because there was nowhere else for them Um, so we can't act like it was just oh this is just a wonderful place Um, but what's interesting of course is the idea of it being a freeing place and that's kind of at the core I think of a lot of the literature yeah so we are running out of time a little bit um, but before we go I do want to talk to you a little bit more about um, Dead End um, and your experience with it, Hamish. What can you tell us? How has it been for you? You know, g- describe this <laughs> this whole process, if you can. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, I'm uh, grateful that the pandemic happened at the same time because there was a re- you know everyone went a bit reclusive and disappeared for two years. Yeah, mm. so. It really consumed my life, but I don't know if anyone truly noticed. Um, <laughs> it was so much fun. I um, 
I really do hope people watch it and and love it, and I, I would love it to be a big success and for us to get more seasons. One thing I like know in my heart is that no matter how big our fandom is, I think they'll be quite loyal and they'll people will really um, connect with the show. Mm. Um, I'm usually not the best at like self congratulating my like books, but knowing that we made like it was a 200 person crew and yeah. uh, properly collaborating with artists and writers and people for the first time in that way allows me to just be so proud of it mm. um and i don't know i mean it's it's fun doing it's funny doing all this press and talking about sort of the groundbreaking elements of it because deep down i i just think it's funny and i just think it's like an enjoyable uh series of episodes um it doesn't feel game-changing uh you know internally in in the actual sort of bones of the show yeah um it's just the way i write and the way i see the world um it's i i don't know it's you talked about the musical episode i'm so proud of that (laughs) um (laughs) i saw your message about it and i was like oh hell yeah (laughs) seriously if i if i could put a musical episode in one of my urban fantasy series even though they're books if i could do a musical episode (laughs) i would because that's amazing yes it's the also i'm like I, i really believe in um taking a musical episode seriously yeah, and not it, not it being an excuse to just see the cast sing, but um, you know, it, it happens. It's the second last episode of season one, and it happens at the kind of emotional peak of all the characters' storylines. So they have real stuff to sing about. Um, that- so it's not just ha 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 musical number. It's like characters who would otherwise not open up their soul like this finally getting a chance to. Yeah. That just sounds um, amazing. Yeah, and all our cast were good singers. We have a <laughs> Tony nominee and all kinds of, um, you know, singers in the cast. We, But also, you know, that's just one episode. We tried to make each episode, like, m- one problem I have with kind of the Netflix model and the binging model is that sometimes individual episodes don't stand out so much. Mm-hmm. But, like, I'm a huge Doctor Who fan, and, like, so my writing uh, sensibilities come from, like, well, every episode needs to be, like, set on a different world with a different cast. We don't go that far, but we... Each episode is meant to sort of touch a different horror subgenre, I suppose. So we have a kind of more zombie episode and a more noir-y episode, and... um, We don't go full, you know, genre-breaking, but we definitely started with wanting to make each one... You know, if someone does binge the whole series, you could still talk about individual episodes really easily. That's really, um, really fantastic. Yeah. And it'll be just really interesting for people like you, Madeline, who's known me so long. <laughs> I didn't necessarily put in, you know, direct references to things, but I feel like you'll just you'll just know it's from my voice. And I think that's Yes. I'm like very glad that it didn't um, like as you, I think you both know, I was developing a Wizard of Oz show mm. at the um, before this, and it was really kind of heartbreaking because just as the show went on, my voice got quieter and quieter and quieter until it became 
something that didn't end up happening and it was really sad at the time but it kind of this was a much better first showrunning experience because I felt like I got to put something out into the world that really makes it clear what my storytelling sensibilities are. It feels like my show, even though, you know, I, I don't like calling it my show because of how many people, how many people's show it is. But I think Um, it's very much, you know, a large part of your vision. And I've got to say, I think part of the reason actually I thought that it might have been your voice when mm -hmm. I heard that was because I could, I could hear your writing so clearly. Um, Mm. And it's wonderful to see that obviously it has been a collaborative effort. And I know how many other people um, have been a part of it and how proud they are it's been great to see some of the you know the other other members um of of you know the cast and the crew talking about it on twitter and things like that um but i think personally from a very personal perspective because i do know you because i have seen kind of the process of your writing um even to the point where you had um you know the first that cartoon hangover dead end where you had uh, Oxy, uh, the f- <laughs> my first ever OC. <laughs> Your first ever OC in there. Um, it, it just fills my heart. I'm just so excited, and it's wonderful to see your voice kind of blossoming in that way and being joined by so many others who've added, I'm sure, their own flavour to it as well, but have also accentuated the idea that you put forward i'm sure that they have loved it as much as you have thank you that's very (laughs) sweet i i um you know budget pandemic first time making a show all that stuff affected things you know we couldn't do everything we wanted apart from that it's not a compromised vision in any kind of way Mm. um I mentioned that Netflix changed the show's name. That was the one thing I ever, like, fought them about and sort of conceded. Um, it's definitely the show we intended to make. Yeah. Um, so, whatever. That's that's very exciting. It's a little scary, because you know that if people don't like it, then you can't blame it on anything. <laughs> um, I just really hope... We can make some more episodes or it can I can make more stuff out of this. Um, but I can also quote unquote die happy. Like I, I made something very I'm very yeah. proud of. It, it already feels like it's going to be a bit of a cult classic, if that makes sense. <laughs> I really do feel like, as you said, you're going to get a very strong kind of fan base a very loyal fan base i think they're already there to be honest um so i think you should be very proud of yourself i will also loosely tease which i think i did a bad job of at the start the book (laughs) series is not over there is a third book coming but it obviously it's taken a long time to get here (laughs) you have been rather busy (laughs) yes um so watch the space Okay, so that is very, very exciting. Yeah, I'm less vocal than Madeline, but I am very excited about this. So I'm sort of sat here nodding, and obviously you can't see me nodding. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. I, You know me, when I get excited, I get chatty. 
Yes, today um, Madeline is channeling excitement for both of us. <laughs> I am equally excited. Well, we are at the end of our episode, um, and I, I just want to thank you again, Hamish. I know how busy you are as well, and that you're doing a lot of other sort of, um, uh, you know, promotion and things like that. So, thanks very much for coming back onto the show it is always a pleasure to have you and i hope that you've enjoyed yourself if you hadn't asked me i would have sent a message saying hey (laughs) um why haven't you asked me (laughs) always welcome always always welcome uh before we go it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and i think it will probably come as no surprise that we will be recommending uh dead end um now obviously uh when this is airing it still hasn't come out yet we haven't watched it um which is why we haven't talked about any really any of the details of sort of the episodes hopefully at some point we will get the chance to actually do that and to dissect some of those aspects but for now um just based on how much we have both enjoyed the uh the graphic novels um and just the fact that i know hamish we're in for a good time. <laughs> I, I have every confidence, <laughs> not a doubt in my mind. Um, so we are recommending it. Please do go and watch it on Netflix. And then be sure to come and tell us what you think. Be sure to send some stuff over to Hamish as well if you've loved it. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Hamish, would you like to tell people how they can sort of find more about you, uh, contact you, anything like that at all? Yeah, I'm Hamish Steele. Um, everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm, I've just remade my website, hamishsteele.co.uk, which kind of lists all the things I've done um, and where to find me and where to buy my books and stuff. So, Fantastic. And on that note, guys, we will say thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye! You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.